0: we're going to head to Matthew chapter 22. So if you want to take out your Bibles, uh, or if you're a child of technology, if you want to open up your idle phone or your Satan song, you can type in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be picking up in verse 15, but as you make your way uh, that direction and head towards verse 15, let me just remind you that the gospel according to Matthew is written in particular to the Jewish audience. So he's writing to the Jews, and he's writing For the purpose of showing that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah he is the anointed one that they have waited upon their king that was going to be of the lineage of David and so Matthew goes to great lengths to reveal this in chapters 1 through 10 that Jesus is in fact the Messiah now he is uh, met with resistance so in chapters 11 through 13 we see that this message in particular with the religious leaders of that day, wasn't met with a lot of of fanfare and hoopla. In fact, it was very negative, the response. And so as Jesus is resisted in chapters 11 through 13, in chapters 14 through 20, we see the king retreating. And he leaves not to not share the message, but instead as he's sharing the message, he's sharing it with people that actually want to hear it. And so Jesus heads north up into Lebanon, and he heads eastward over into the Jordan. He heads to a group that want to actually hear this message, the good news, the gospel. Now then, we began last week in chapter 21, looking at the king being not only just resisted, but now rejected. And so he's headed into Jerusalem in chapter 21, where we began last week. He comes into the city triumphantly and the people that are there in the city they lay palm branches down they cry out hosanna save now we pray they're so excited for jesus to enter in for a little while <laughs> it only lasts so long the praises do before they completely and totally reject the message and so today in the message we're going to see a little spin off of a leonard skinner song a little give me three questions mr We've got the religious and the political leaders come to Jesus, and they've got questions. These are the ones that have headed up the rejection of Christ. They now have questions, these Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it's important to understand the significance of when Jesus came and why he came. I shared a little bit with you last week that it was prophetic. Jesus came in the exact day that Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, that he would walk triumphantly into the city, but he also came during the feast of Passover. And so in Exodus chapter 12, Moses is given by God the command of the Passover feast. It was how the children of Israel would actually escape judgment. And so they were to take the lamb into their house on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, and they were to keep the lamb until the 14th day where they would sacrifice the lamb and take the blood of the lamb and actually put it on the wood posts of their house and you begin to see the significance of the blood of the lamb placed upon the wood as Jesus in just a few days is going to be placed upon the cross the blood of the lamb behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that's what John the Baptist would say about Jesus and so you begin to see the link from the Old Testament to the New Testament and The significance of this time frame is the lamb was to be brought into the house for four days to be examined. To make sure the lamb was perfect and worthy of a sacrifice. It was to be without spot and blemish. And so here's Jesus now in the city of Jerusalem and he is going to be examined. Beginning in verse 15, the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And so we see the Pharisees are the first group up. They are plotting against Jesus. They're looking, how can we entangle him in his speech? And so of the three questions that are going to get asked, or the three groups that are going to come in to ask questions, we're going to see them asking a political question, an ethical question, and a doctrinal question. So no doubt today, one of these questions is probably going to hit home. I'm just giving you a little bit of a warning shot over the bow right off the bat. But in all of the questioning that takes place with Jesus, this is actually fulfillment of prophecy. This goes back to the lamb being examined for that four-day period, the exact amount of time that Jesus was there in the city of Jerusalem. And so at the end of that, I'm going to spoil the end of the story in case you didn't know already, that Pontius Pilate in Luke 23, 4, what he says is, I find no fault in this man. That after all the examining and all the questioning, Jesus was deemed worthy. Worthy for you, worthy for me. And so he's approached by this first group. And this is a group that's concerned in particular with politics. This is the Herodians. In verse 16, and they sent to him, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. And so remember in verse 15, the Pharisees are plotting how to kill Jesus. They send their disciples along with the Herodians. That might seem uh, inconsequential unless you understand the politics of that day uh, and the reality is the Herodians and the Pharisees hated each other they were enemies they could not stand one another and in fact the only thing they agreed on is they hated Jesus more <laughs> They're like you know what we hate that guy way more than we hate you so let's band together and they agree to team up to go against Jesus so this is a little bit of the backdrop continuing in verse 16, the Herodians come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. So tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so they come to Jesus with a a tax question, a politically charged tax question. And they begin by giving him flattering words which is precisely why uh, in Proverbs, Solomon says this about flattery. He says in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. In verse 6, by transgression, an evil man is snared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. And so here we see a trap being set for Jesus, a, a snare, a net being set at his feet to see if he would fall for it. And the trap was simply this, that for the Jews, they could not stand the Roman government. And they believed, they'd at least convinced themselves, that anyone that would pay taxes to Caesar, who declared himself as a god to his people, was essentially worshiping a false god. It was blasphemy. So the trap for Jesus was, if you said it's lawful to pay taxes, that he was, in effect, worshiping a false god. Now, on the flip side, if Jesus said, hey, you don't need to pay your taxes, we're excited about that, right? Uh, But the issue is, uh, where is he? He's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple, the Roman guards are standing all around. He is, in effect, incited a riot. He would have been a complete rebel against the Roman government if he tells these people that they should not pay their taxes. And so either way you go, he's either going to be a traitor to Rome, they're going to take him off and have him killed, that takes care of the problem they had with Jesus anyway, Or he's a traitor to his own people the Jews then the Jews are gonna set out to have him killed and so they're essentially laying down the gauntlet for Jesus saying make a stand make a political decision here Jesus which way are you gonna go and so he continues this is the answer our Lord gives them in verse 18 but Jesus perceived their wickedness and said why do you test me you hypocrites I love how Jesus responds to these guys. I mean, he doesn't mince any words whatsoever. He says, you all are a bunch of hypocrites. He knows that they're testing him. In verse 19, he says, show me the tax money. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And in verse 22, when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. And so Jesus, in verse 19, he says to them, "Uh, show me the tax money. And so they brought to him a denarius. Isn't it interesting that the Son of Man, the God of the universe, uh, didn't have pocket change? He didn't even have a coin on him to be able to pull out of his own pocket. Now, possibly because he didn't have pockets uh, at all. But the point is, he didn't have even a coin on him to be able to share with the people. And he says, then, looking at this in verse 20, whose image and inscription is upon this? And, and they, of course, reply, it's Caesar's. And so in verse 21, what, what's his answer? Well, then give to Caesar whatever he has marked for himself. Whatever he's written upon, whatever he's put his image upon, apparently it was his anyway, so give it right back to him. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say but give to God whatever is God's now notice the language he says whatever Caesar has marked his image upon is Caesars but whatever God has marked his image upon is God's which raises the question what does God put his image upon Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 we see the very beginning of our Bible what does God say about mankind let us make him in our own image. What is God truly after in this whole situation, this whole circumstance? He's after you. He's after me. He's after the heart of the people. He could care less about their money. Give it back to Caesar. I'm worried about you. I'm worried about your heart situation. And so when we see what God is truly after in our lives, he's looking at redemption. He's wanting to Buy us back. That's what redemption is. It means that it was once your possession, and now you want that back. That's what God's saying about you and I. You were once mine. You walked away. You sold yourself into slavery. Now I want you back. I'm looking to redeem you. Now, here's where it gets dicey. How then do we handle political situations or politically charged affairs? Notice with Jesus, what he didn't do is he did not fight back. He did not stamp his feet. He did not yell and scream. He simply beat them at their own game. We, in this same vein, are called, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, he says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authority... Resist the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And so as we get all riled up and we buck up against the government, not my president. That's not what God said. <laughs> God actually said he appointed him. No matter whether he's a Republican or a Democrat, you like him or you don't like him. And in fact, what uh, I am encouraged by this is Jesus intentionally stayed out of politics. Why? because it's politically charged, it's emotional. Whatever is said politically is gonna somehow offend uh, someone else, which is precisely why I will not get into politics from here. I will not bring up a political rant. I have my opinions, I have my viewpoints. Maybe some of you would agree with me, but the issue is some of you wouldn't. And so, do I sit up here, or do I do what the Lord has encouraged me to do, and shut my pie hole when it comes to politics. That's precisely the route I'm going to do. I'm going to keep it zipped. Why? Because it's not about political sides or which side we might take. It's about the heart of the people. That's precisely what God was after in the first place. The issue they have that they're all upset about, if we really want to point a finger, church, if we really want to point a finger at who to be upset when we don't like how something's going in the government, Uh, I'm going to flip back with you to your favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. Everybody loves to spend time in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 25, as God is giving the children of Israel what they needed in order to live in the land, he says in Leviticus 25 verse 18, So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments. Perform them and you will dwell in the land in safety. Verse 19 says, The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. So here's the thing. Who did they have to blame for the Romans even being in Israel? Themselves. If they'd followed what God said and truly followed his statutes and been a people after God, there would have been no Romans. The Romans were only there because they were disobedient. And so when we find ourselves in a politically charged situation or we're upset about the way things are going, you know who we really truly have to blame? It's our own backslidings. (laughs) We have walked away from God and the only way to enter back into a right relationship is to turn back towards him. Now, the other piece of this that's important for us as a Christian church to remember is that we are... Not just simply citizens of these United States of America, but we are more importantly citizens of the kingdom of God. We're dual citizens. And so as we get all upset about what's happening in the temporal realm, remember, it's not going to last. So the thing that we need to get the most upset, the most excited about, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news, it's the only thing that will actually give people any kind of hope at all. That's the kingdom we need to be focused upon. All right, before I get myself in any more trouble, let's talk about a lighter topic like sex. All right, chapter 22, uh, we'll pick up in verse 23. And the same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked, in verse 24, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife, and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, in verse 25, there were, uh, there were with us seven brothers. The first died and he married and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also died and the third and even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman also died. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. That ought to be easy to understand. So, first of all, let's begin with who's doing the speaking. The Sadducees in verse 23. Now, the Sadducees were a religious group, but they also had a political affiliation. They were the more liberal group, but they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in uh, resurrection. They didn't believe uh, in the afterlife, which is precisely why they're so sad, you see. Oh, I had you there, didn't I? right? That's precisely why they were always so upset. But they didn't believe in the resurrection and yet notice what they did. They started again like the Herodians with flattery and then from flattery they moved into a question about a topic they didn't believe in whatsoever. Now the question they asked about a woman who was married to a brother, the brother died with no children and then she was given to the next brother, this is actually a question regarding Leverite marriage. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, Moses lays out the rules of Leverite marriage. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through what Leverite marriage is, only to have you understand this is essentially God's social program for a widow. That in that day, women didn't have the ability to go out and get jobs and provide for themselves. And so what God did is gave them a rule that said, if a woman dies and she doesn't have a son, could take care of her because the son could go out and actually get a job and make a living that she was to be given to the next brother in the family and so on and so forth so the woman could essentially have someone to care for her and so you see the love that's actually behind the law of Levite marriage now what uh, Jesus does is he actually turns this back against them and puts this back on their heads he says to them in verse 29 and Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. And so he says, look, here's the real problem, boys. you got two issues. One, you don't know your Scriptures. You claim to be knowledgeable about the Word of God, but you don't have a clue what you're talking about. And secondly, you don't believe in God's power, i.e. the resurrection. The resurrection was the very power of God embodied in Jesus Christ. What does Jesus say in John chapter 11, verse 25? I put it up there on the screen for you. He tells this woman, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies i am the resurrection and the life it was the very person that he was he was the resurrection and so because they've denied the resurrection they've denied the very power of god but all these men could think about was what there you go fellas this is what you think about who's she going to sleep with when she gets to heaven that's what we're really concerned about i mean she's got seven choices when she gets to heaven is she just going to pick the most handsome the most fit maybe that guy is the right guy for me and so this is the issue that they have when they've completely missed the issue altogether what Jesus is saying is you don't understand that when you get to heaven you're going to have an improved body no longer are you going to have these tabernacles for those of us whose tabernacles are falling apart we're very thankful no longer these tabernacles but we're going to have a temple body that is not an an exact angelic body but what's jesus say like the angels it's going to be a far improved far better model and then to go along with that these heavenly bodies are so much more advanced so too are, are will our relationships be advanced so we get all worked up and concerned about this issue the topic of sex well what jesus is trying to say is I'm going to see that you have a far deeper relationship with one another, something far more intimate. You're going to truly know one another at a way deeper level than just this most closest uh, physical relationship than we can possibly have. And so for some, this makes you very uncomfortable, and for others, uh, maybe even more uncomfortable. (laughs) But then when you think about the reality of our world, How many issues do we have as a society because of sex? How many issues? Almost everyone, powerful men who fall greatly. Why? Because they cannot stay under control in this arena. How many relationships are damaged? And so there are some who who this has been a major issue in their life. And what Jesus is saying is, rest assured, it won't be an issue any longer. There are others where this whole topic causes a great amount of pain because of pain that's been inflicted upon them. What Jesus is saying is you don't have to worry about that for all of eternity because the relationship I want you to have with me and with one another is way deeper than this. Now, that's not the pain, a bad picture about intercourse. Please don't misunderstand me. And when my wife listens to this, please don't misunderstand. <laughs> I'm still a man. Papa's got needs. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is there is a different relationship that Jesus has in mind and that the marriage relationship is actually supposed to be a picture of Christ and his church. It is supposed to be so much more powerful, so much more intimate than anything we can fathom. All right, now that I've got myself in trouble there, let's continue on. In verse... 31. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And so again, the Sadducees, thinking they were going to have Jesus tripped up, instead what he does is he answers, in a far deeper way than anyone could imagine. In verse 31, he reminds them, you need to be reading your Bible. That's what he's ultimately telling them. He says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Remember, these people's jobs, their careers were to read. And Jesus is saying, did you miss that part? Did you skip that section? Have you not read? And he takes them all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 and this is the burning bush moment. And so here's Moses in the wilderness. He's in the deserts of Midian and what does he come across but a burning bush, a bush that was unlike any other. It was on fire, it continued to be on fire, and then the bush began to speak to him. This is some kind of a interaction Moses has. And what the and what the bush actually tells him in uh, verse 5, excuse me, in verse 6 of Exodus 3. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's what Jesus quoted. And so it was God that Moses was actually face-to-face with. Now Moses being uh, nervous about who he was speaking to, as God tells him, you need to go back to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. What's Moses say? What if the people don't listen? Who am I going to tell him even uh, sent me to, to speak this word? I've been gone 40 years Who can I tell him sent me? And in verse 14 of Exodus 3, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. This is the covenant name that God gives to Moses to tell the children of Israel who it was that sent him. And so that name in our Bibles, the only translation we have are these four letters, Y-H-V-H. We're not even sure what the consonants are because the children of Israel thought this was such a venerated name, they refused to write the consonants, which means uh, it gives us the understanding of why we're not sure if the name is Yahweh or Jehovah. So if you've ever wondered which one is it, we don't know. We just know it's YHVH. And so both you can use interchangeably. They're both correct. They're both the covenant name of God for the children of Israel. But more importantly, the name means I am. Not I was. Not I used to be. That's what Jesus is trying to share with them That's what God was saying to Moses, I am. I am what, might be your question. I am whatever you need me to be. That's what God was trying to communicate to Moses and to us throughout history. So if you're in a tight spot and you need defense, maybe there's some of you that have needed God as a defender. What he's saying is call upon Jehovah Ganon, is what David says in Psalm 89 the Lord my defense. Or maybe you're in a spot where you need healing in your life. What he says is, call upon Jehovah Rophe, the Lord my healer, is what Isaiah 53 says. Or perhaps you're in a tumultuous season and you just need some peace. Call upon Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah my peace. Isaiah chapter 9. Or... Who's standing right in front of these men right now? Jehovah Shua, the Lord my salvation. In Hebrew, Jehovah Shua is Yeshua, where we get our name Joshua from, or where in Greek is translated Jesus. Here's Jehovah Shua standing right in front of these men saying, Hey, boys, I want you to pay attention to this. God's not dead. He's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a dead God. He's very much alive. The great I am is alive. He is active. But here's the thing. That also means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are also not dead because he's not the God that serves the dead. He's the God of the living, which is precisely why neither will you be if you believe for all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so the power of God that they denied is because they did not believe in the resurrection, they'd actually committed themselves to death eternally. That's what Jesus is trying to say. That's the grace of our Lord and Savior. Pay attention to your scriptures. I am here for the living, and they will continue to live for all of eternity. Now then, back to the text at hand. And what we see is this final group are going to come to Jesus, and this is now the Pharisees in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And so the Pharisees are now the final group to come. This is a group that uh, called themselves the fence of the law. They believed it was their position in Judaism to actually defend God from anyone that might attack him. Defend his law from everyone else. And so they called themselves the fence of the law. And this lawyer comes to Jesus and he wants to know what is the greatest commandment. Now, to us, in our uh, modern-day Christianity, we think of uh, commandments, we think of what? The top 10 list, right? Exodus chapter 20. But uh, to good little Jewish boys and girls, what they knew is there weren't just 10 commandments in the Old Testament, but 613. And so they gave to Jesus quite the list to pick from. So here you go. I'm going to spread them all out there before you. Tell us which one is the greatest. And what Jesus does is he quotes Here in verse 37, Jesus said to to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now for these Jewish boys and girls, they were very excited. Why? Because this takes them all the way back to their law, Deuteronomy, your second favorite book to spend time in, Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is what's known as the great Shema. And in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Little Jewish boys were required to memorize this. Not only that, but the law of Moses told them that they needed to keep this on the forefront of their minds, to keep it on the doorposts of their houses, So to this day, if you go to Israel, you'll see these little round cylinders on the doorposts of houses of Orthodox Jews. They're called mezuzahs. And what they have rolled up inside those little containers are Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and and 5, which say, Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. That's where the term, the great Shema comes from. It just means, Hear, Israel, the Lord your God, Uh, is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so, no doubt, these men and women were excited. The picture I put up there on the screen, they were literally, even to this day, put these boxes on their foreheads called phylacteries with these words written in them. They took this that literally. So, they were probably doing the big high five at this point in time. Yeah, he nailed it. He got the right commandment. But Jesus, as he can do so often, doesn't stop there. He says in verse 39, excuse me, in verse 38, this is the first and greatest commandment, and then in verse 39, he says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this phrase like could actually be the phrase linked to it. So the two are inner link. That's from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Loving your neighbor as yourself now, for years, I've heard people say, you have to love yourself before you can love anyone else. But what I've found is loving ourselves is never a problem, even for people that are insecure, even for people that think, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not skinny enough, I'm not witty enough. Who are they always referring to? Themselves. Insecurity is the most insidious form of pride. Pride. We think about ourselves all the time. And so what Jesus is saying is, you don't have a problem with loving yourself. You love yourself way too much. But you need to love your neighbor with that same type of veracity. Now John takes this a step further. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, he says this, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? In verse 21, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And so what we find is that you cannot love others unless you first love God. Now, some may get upset. You're telling me I can't love my wife unless I love God, or I can't love my husband unless I love God. That is precisely what I'm saying. (laughs) You cannot love them the way God intends for you to love them unless you first love him. But then, how does it flesh out in your life? How do you actually know that you're doing a good job loving God? It's how are you doing loving others? Loving other people is a sign for how I'm doing with loving God. The two are linked together. And so, what we so often want to do is compartmentalize. We want to compartmentalize all these relationships. Why? Because it's easy to love the people we like. Because surely God doesn't mean that I have to love, let's go through the list, stupid people. I mean, I I can love people, but I shouldn't have to love stupid people. I mean, that moron that pulled out in front of me on the way to church was just stupid, and I made sure I let him know about it with a little tap on the horn. Kids might have heard a little something, but hey, I didn't cuss on the way to church, so I'm feeling pretty good about me. Right? So stupid people surely aren't included, but what what Jesus is saying is, no, we, we have to love stupid people. Okay, then what about, what about ugly people? I mean, surely I don't have to love ugly people. I mean, U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi. You ugly, right? Ugly people shouldn't have to be loved. I'm not talking about just externally ugly. We'll, we'll keep them in the conversation, but internally ugly people, mean people. Well, I shouldn't have to love ugly people. But Jesus doesn't preclude ugly people, neither does John. Okay, then the final group, what about sinful people? Surely I don't have to love the sinners. I'm not talking about the little white lies sin that we like. I'm talking about those really nasty, sinful people. I surely don't have to love them, right? And we try so hard to keep all these people in their separate compartments. Why? Because it's hard. But you see what Jesus is saying is it's a direct reflection on how you love me with how you love others. Now, as a kid growing up down in Casey, uh, Illinois, my grandmother lived right before you got to the park on 4th Street. And uh, my great-grandmother would fix these meals. Uh, Nanny is what we called her. And she would have some kind of Saturday afternoon soiree. I mean, if you were there on a Saturday for lunch, you would have thought you were a king. Fried chicken, corn on the cob, mashed taters, gravy, tomatoes, uh, fresh out of the garden. It was unbelievable, the spread. You could hardly get a plate on the table. There was so much food. And there would be my great-grandfather there at the head of the table, grandpa's there, mom and dad, my brother and I, and we ate like kings. And there he was on the end of the table, my great-grandfather, Carl, and he was doing this with his fork, keeping everything separate. Working like a dog, keeping it all separate. Why? Because he didn't want his food to touch. He didn't want it all blending in together. And so my grandfather would say, Dad, don't you know that it all goes in the same spot anyway? Why are you spending all that time? He would be the last one done with lunch every Saturday because he was working so hard to keep his food separate. Only for Grandpa Carl to say, that may be true for you, son, but for me, I've got compartments. I've got a chicken compartment. I've got a tomato compartment. I've got a corn compartment. It goes over here. I've got a potato compartment. I keep it separate so that way my body's not confused about which compartment to put my food in. And he would work feverishly to keep things in the compartment that he wanted them in. And then I think about how much time and energy I spend and waste trying to keep everything compartmentalized. I want to keep the mean people in their compartment. I want to keep that boss. Man, he ticked me off so bad. I'll put him over here. But Jesus is saying, I want it all blended together. And the reality is, this is how we are called to live our lives in our relationships. That at work, I am called to be the same that I am right here on Sundays. I am called to be the same as I am at my house. That's called operating with integrity. That's operating where everything is all in the same compartment. And so yeah, that thing that was so untasteful that I said, if I can't say that in front of my family, maybe I didn't need to say it at all. And now the compartments, they get way more personal, way faster. And so that's precisely though what God is calling us to do. But your question may be, how on earth can I love like that? John, in verse 19 of John chapter, or 1 John chapter 4, says this, that we are able to do this. We love him because he first loved us. The only way you will be able to love God and love others is when you finally realize that he loved you first. When you were mean, when you were ugly, When you were even stupid in situations, he loved you. When you were sinful, down to your very core, he loved you. And when you start to let those things sink in, then I think you get to the point where you go, how can I not love others? (laughs) When I see all the things Jesus has cleaned up in my life, how can I withhold love and care for other people? Now then, back to Matthew chapter 22. And while the, excuse me, in verse 40, Jesus says, and on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, there's no scriptural basis to prove that Jesus did it this way, but at least in my mind's eye, as he is speaking to the people, I wonder if he didn't say to them, that on all these things or on these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. If he didn't outstretch his arms in a way that they wouldn't understand for days to come but actually show them that here is the very embodiment of the law and the prophets and that's precisely what they nailed to the cross. But then we have to ask ourselves what is it that hung him on the cross? What was it that nailed him there In the first place, John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That it was actually love that nailed him to the cross. He showed us what perfect love actually looks like. It's self-sacrificing, not self-promoting. And he allowed himself to, Not required to, but allowed himself to be nailed in such a way. Now then, verse 41. And while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. Now he's turned the table. He's going to ask them a question. What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, and he quotes here out of Psalm 110 the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand till i make your enemies your footstool and if david in verse 45 calls him lord how is he his son in verse 46 no one was able to answer him a word nor did nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore and so jesus flips it back on them, asks them a question from their own text, one they would have been very familiar with, a messianic messianic psalm, Psalm 110. He starts by saying, if uh, the Christ, the Messiah, is to be the son of David, why then does David call him Lord? Now what Jesus is referring to is, for the Jewish believer, they did not believe that the Messiah would also be God. They believed the Messiah would be king, He would be in the lineage of David, but not that he would also be God in the flesh. This was something they were mistaken about in the text. But Jesus points them back to their own Bible and says, if this is the case, if uh, the Messiah is only the son of David, then no son would ever have their father refer to them as Lord. No matter how much the father respected the son, in their day and age, in this culture, they would never at any point in time called their son Lord, Adonai, Master. They wouldn't stoop to that level. And yet, as David, writing about the Messiah, says, Then the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David refers to the Messiah as his Lord. What he's really doing for these guys is blowing their minds that the Messiah might be way more Than they ever had their heads wrapped around. That there was way more than meets the eye. The same way he was blowing their minds about the heavenly scene, he's doing this right now about the Messiah. And then in verse 46, they had no answer. Which, as we wrap up today, I think we see three different groups of people, three different questions that were asked, three similar responses. In verse 22, as the Herodians came to Jesus and they asked a question about taxes and politics, what do we see from their answer? They marveled at his answer. In verse 33, the Sadducees come and they've got an ethical question to ask Jesus, one they were sure would trip him up. And what do we see in verse 33? They were astonished. And then arriving where we're at now in verse 46 with the Pharisees, What do we see is they're so sure they were going to trip him up, he flips the script back upon them, and they were speechless. But what did all three of these groups lack? Don't look at the screen and cheat. All three of these groups, they marveled, they astonished, they were speechless, but what they did not do is they did not believe. It's not a bad thing to be astonished by God. In fact, I would tell you it's a wonderful thing. It's not a bad thing for you to marvel at him or for him to render you speechless. I would actually encourage you in your relationship with Jesus to have multiple interactions with this. But don't let yourself slip into unbelief. Now, there are people here today that do not believe, I'm sure of it, that you're stumbling around, you're trying to figure these things out, but, but I would challenge you to think back upon your life. Have you ever marveled at God? Has he ever done something that just blew your doors off, that you were astonished by, something that was completely inexplicable, that left you speechless? If you have been, I challenge you to believe in the one who created it, the one who created all things. But if you've been a believer for some period of time, how long has it been since you marveled? How long has it been since you were astonished? How long has it been since you were speechless at the goodness of God? If it's been any length of time, go back to him. Turn and go back to your first love. This is the criticism Jesus had of the Ephesian church, a church that had done so good in Revelation. They had done a great job of stomping out evil. And, and, and running off evil people that wanted to come into the church, but Jesus said, but this thing I have against you, you left your first love. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the start. Start over again in your relationship with him. Take a chance that he might astonish you in something, that you might just be blown away at the goodness of God. And so, Father, we thank you, and we praise you for your word. We thank you for Matthew chapter 22 for questions that are asked by men that didn't understand even the questions they were asking. We thank you, Father, for, for a promise of far deeper relationships, ones that we know not of, but we are so excited to get to see what it is you have to reveal to us in the life to come. Thank you, Fathers, for, for the promise of making us dual citizens that we can look forward to the eternal things and we don't have to be only focused on the troubles that we have here today. And Thank you, Father, for a reminder of compartmentalization. (laughs) How many times we spend tireless numbers of hours trying to keep things separate when you want to be involved and active in all things in our life, Lord. I'm sorry for the way that I've done that in my life. Father, thank you that you pursue us to the degree that you will not let that stand. That you allow us to be miserable in trying to keep things separate and people separate and situations separate. That you love us enough to actually blend it all back together. And Father, help us today be astonished at your goodness. Be astonished at your love for us, that you loved us so much That you would lay down your life for us, that you would pursue us to this degree. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for what you're up to. Thank you for a resurrected life. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: Please stand. I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures, the fame are never. Desire is now satisfied. The hearing. Out of the valley, there's not a place your mercy, grace won't find. you're the only one who can. you turn graves into god you turn bones into army you turn seas into highways you're the only Amen.
0: Thank you guys. Well, God bless you guys as you go out this week. Let me just challenge you that if you have turned away and you have uh, found another love, turn back to your first. Because there is truly nothing better than Jesus. And he is there waiting, uh, open armed, uh, ready to receive. So God bless you guys. Don't forget communion meal this next week. Look forward to seeing you